We're gonna leave you alone for a couple of sections. We're gonna leave you alone for a couple of. <laughs> you, you got this. It's, it's definitely seconds. It's awesome. The, the, the word you're looking yes. for is seconds. <laughs> I know. I know. I have it written in my mind. You know. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing? Hey, Roland, I'm doing all right. It's getting chilly out. We had our big first uh, snowfall last night, and uh, boy, it is a wintry wonderland out there now. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm loving it, though. I always dream for a, a white birthday. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm born in the month of December, so if I can get a nice snowfall before then, uh, you know, it's lots of fun. I, I love it. Well, what am I supposed to say? I'm a summer child, you know, <laughs> early September. It's just the best time of the year. And and I wish I had a second home on uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, you know. <laughs> wow. So you could completely avoid all the things that I love. Well, isn't that why if we're perfect I could, co-hosts? If I could. Not, not everything that you uh, love, but at least the, the cold weather. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really love is the topic of today's conversation. And I'm really glad we're getting a chance to get around to it because boy, it's a really important part of our ecosystem of making architecture successful. And that is governance and governance design. And Roland, you've had a ton of experience with that. Uh, Before we get into the topics of the show, what brought you to focus on governance? What was the first sort of taste of the need for governance that, that pushed you towards interest in that topic? Governance is a topic that nobody's super excited about. Mm-hmm. So you might be the only person in the world who's really excited <laughs> about this. But there is a need of setting out the rules for engagement. Yeah. Right. You need to say, okay, who's doing what? And it needs to be coordinated in some form or fashion. And um, the challenge that I see with that is when I look at uh, architects and, and uh, architecture as a discipline, a lot of the organizations who did this they were just saying, well, I don't know what you do content-wise, but I know for damn sure how I can control what you do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those organizations went and became uh, the governance um, masters, if you will, and they made everybody else's life miserable, (laughs) right? So one webinar that I participated in, I had a moderator who just came and said, look, the ARB is the committee of no. Um, which most people think, yes, N-O, no, because that's what they say. And, and he said, no, 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 I want you to think about a committee of no, K-N-O-W, hmm. you know, so how does that change? And and I think we're still in that phase that a lot of organizations focus on the governance instead of focusing on all the other things that you should do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. But at the same time, uh, I, I really found the love for governance uh, when working in unstable spaces, um, teams that didn't have the mandate or the drive or the, the skill set and expertise or the exposure to the rest of the organization um, and really well-meaning people 
moving into a wild west mm-hmm. and that's that's where it gets really dicey um that, that means that you're releasing content you're rolling out uh, best practices to a larger team that haven't really been validated yeah uh, and you're not being able to see everything put in the same space be able to validate that the best practices are that you're basing your work on are in fact current and they're, they have been seen, that they've been approved. Man, that, that really that really kills the motivation when people aren't able to see all this stuff and trust all this stuff. And governance really is that gatekeeper to trust. And we wanna take a look at that today, how you can make that happen. Yeah, but that is a mechanical outcome of it. Yes, you need this. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe for our audience, it's a little bit more interesting to say what role does governance play in developing architectures. And one thing that we did at my previous employer, we had a nice two by two matrix, Mm -hmm. uh, because as you know, consultants love matrices. (laughs) And in this case, and we're gonna put it in the show notes, in this case, uh, the axis were on the X axis, uh, the degree of specialization. And on the Y axis, it was the scope of contribution, Mm -hmm. right? So when you think about it, um, say we start in the lower right-hand quadrant, right? We see, uh, which is very specialized people, but in the overall effort, a relatively low contribution, right? right? You see all those specialists, you see your business architects, you see your application architects, you see the uh, specialist in tool X, mm-hmm. you know, it's all important. And, and when I spoke with people about, hey, I need an architecture, um, or got this question asked, everybody thought something different uh, when I got this question. Yeah. So in this case, typically they ask for the content. And content people are important, obviously, that's the whole meat why we're doing this. When you then go further to the left, where you have a low contribution, but also a low degree of specialization, this is where you see the governance. This is where, just because it's low and low, right? most people thought they can make a splash and they can do something. And this is how all those ivory towers were Mm -hmm. built. I think the more interesting roles is when you go to the high level of contribution, right? And when you think about uh, on the high level of contribution and a low specialization, um, which is the upper left quadrant, well, you will see an architect as a strategic advisor. Right. You know, somebody who gets brought to the table and who helps defining the what. What should we do? Right, because those are the folks that typically would see the relationships between the different views, between the different things. They know which projects are going on, yada, 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 all that stuff. And then inevitably, and that's the fourth archetype, if you will, in the upper right-hand corner, high contribution as the strategic advisor, but high specialization, that is the transformation agent. Mm-hmm. You know, The how, how do we make this happen now? What are the details? And what I've seen in the past, when you think about those four quadrants, um, I've seen a lot of people in that lower left-hand quadrant, <laughs> you know, low contribution, yeah. low specialization, governance, let's put on some rules and we're good. Um, and I think going forward, that should be significantly less. And we're going to talk about how that could look like in this episode here. And I think we should have more of the high contribution stuff, you know, the what and the how. Yeah, I I think that when you're talking about those kind of the role side of enterprise architects, I want to also scale this out to 
the different types of contributors to the governance process. Mm -hmm. And you know, we, we talked a little bit about the why at a high level you should be implementing governance around uh, EA and BPA, but in, in, in how you implement it and who it affects, let's talk about deciding on who is involved in this governance process and when they get involved in the process. Because as I know you have, we have a model, of course. <laughs> as process experts, <laughs> we always have a model. Uh, but let's talk about the not just the roles of an enterprise architect, but also the meta roles, who's who's involved uh, across the organization. And I mean, I think that the one of the things that is often focused on is a lot of ownership. On mm -hmm. um, the ownership of the architect, the ownership of the process. On um, the owners are often involved. But I feel like we we often miss the end affected. The users, the specialists in their different domains, who should be brought in. Talk to me about sort of how that how governance rolls down and how you would roll governance up. Yeah. So, so the question is, when do you start with that exercise? Yeah. Right. In an ideal world, that would be a topic of your implementation, and and you and I spoke about this in a previous episode, mm -hmm. uh, where we said, okay, what are the main work package in the implementation and. and for obvious reasons, governance is one of the important things here. Right. But in general, to answer your question, I would start with uh, any activity that an architect does with the stakeholders. Right. You know, who is it for? What are their needs? What are their objectives? You know, what what is their role in that whole game? So that would be the first group, right? Because they will give you the guidance. What do I want to accomplish? How complex is this? Uh, how, what big of an effort is this, and so on and so forth, right? And they might have conflicting interests. Of you course. Know, one of the stakeholder might say, uh, let's do quick and dirty, while the other says, no, 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 we need to follow that well laid out process and uh, every step and every signature must be very, very precise. <laughs> so now you have a conflict. Yeah, well, that's good though, right? You're getting this, this healthy discourse between stakeholders. The second one is, uh, actually, the people who are tasked with implementing your tool, mm -hmm. right? Those are the experts that might know limitations, what's doable and whatnot. When we think about automating governance processes, for example, you know, you, the best ideas die if it, they can't be implemented. Uh, but then, obviously, uh, your your owners come in, mm -hmm. right? If you have that set up in some form or fashion, and even if it's just on a very high level that you say, oh, Jim Bob owns this and Sue owns that, that's helpful. Bring those people in. Right. Those will be the guys, maybe supported, and that might be the next uh, stakeholder group, might be supported by the PMO. Right, right, right. right. All those people who should then uh, track everything. And if you recall our little approach that we discussed in the earlier episode, we said develop a strategy and then build dashboards and reports to see where you are. Mm -hmm. So bring those guys in. And then last but not least, I would have a look at um, other involved parties. And the first one that comes to mind is obviously your risk people. Right. When you think about the three lines of defense, you know, they have different objectives. So one is interested in the operational risk management. The other one is interested in setting up a risk management system, which is a governance process in itself. Mm -hmm. and they might have made decisions. And then the third one is your internal auditors who actually do the work. Um, I think that's, that's very important. Yeah. And then lastly, I would bring in a selection of users. So if you have an idea where you want to go, you know, do you do 
a business architecture development processes or is it a larger solution that you want to implement bring in people who shall contribute uh, as representatives of your end users mm -hmm. because they are the guys who actually have to do it and i think you brought up a really important point and word there a representative mm -hmm. remember that we're talking about creating these groups of stakeholders uh and, and affected parties um, that are going to help contribute to the development of governance so the strategy and design and also to the implementation and execution of governance so that makes a lot of sense but you can't obviously hold them all in a single room. So one of the things you're gonna to wanna to do is roll up insights from groups of people, get representation um, of those folks in smaller meetings where they have a chance to bring together concerns and ideas, and then roll up those insights through the representatives, um, maybe on a governance council, um, or as part of the governance discovery and design process. And that, that's really important to be able to manage the scale of contribution, mm -hmm. because everyone's got ideas. As you said before, there might be some storming yep. going on, but we want to come to a, a design that works for everybody in a timely fashion, and that takes paring down the number of voices to what makes the most amount of sense for you. Wholeheartedly agree. So along those lines, uh, we, we talk a lot about, about making governance come to life. Uh, and the last question I wanted to ask, there's, there's a sort of a, a two-part thing uh, in, in this section here. Uh, we're talking about governance and the automation thereof. I'll talk a little bit about why I think that's really important. Um, but then I want to talk about the implementation approach of, of automation. And I know, you know, once again, we've got a great graphic. And Roland, you've done a lot of this here. But... Um, from my perspective, automation of governance is is really important. Uh, for the very first reason of that, is to reduce the the perceived uh, effort required to implement governance, the perceived effort required to maintain governance, uh, and to incentivize people to follow along with governance design, governance strategy, and governance requirements. It, it, the more you feel like you have to have a human touch, the more you feel you have to be involved in something, the, the more disincentivizing you are to people who are worried about that, worried about efficiency. They talk a lot about like, you know, if we're trying to be lean and agile and why all, all these governance activities are slowing us down, or we have to have a lot of human beings. It's a very costly process. We don't know if that's actually valuable. And there's a lot of this that, that gets eliminated with automation. So one of the first big investments you'll make besides the stretch strategic design is in finding a way to implement that uh, in technology uh, and taking that as an advantage forward to say, listen, we're getting the value off of governance and we're not even paying the people that we think we'd need to have to pay or the manual effort that that's going to cost a lot of money we'd have to pay uh, in human labor. We're going to be able to use those people for their intended jobs and not for sort of keeping this governance process going. Yeah, I think the challenge with that is you can go overboard with that. You know, you can build the most elaborate tool chain of whatever you you cobble together mm -hmm. and that will kill the joy as well <laughs> so my recommendation uh, would be instead of trying to bring various tools together have a look at your architecture tool if that has a workflow engine being built in so that it's seamless that you can create custom dialogues uh, that you have the task lists in the tool, mm -hmm. you know, so that you get nagged and you get get all the links in there. Because what I've seen is, is organizations who said, no, we don't need this. We have our ITIL certified ticketing process in JIRA. So this is just another ticket type. <laughs> and I can promise you <clears throat> those tickets will never be closed because people <laughs> might do the work and, and then they simply forget to go back into JIRA and close it. And when you run the reports, you get obviously a undesirable Result. Yeah, you want to do governance closest to the source. And that's that's very easy for you to, to take that work that you're doing 
be able to govern it within its own confines and then push that governed inside out to a larger group of stakeholders, right? That, that, that seems to make mm -hmm. a lot more sense to me. But implementing that, and Roland, I, once again, I know you've got this under your belt. Tell me about the implementation approach you would take to governance. Huh, that's a very good question. So uh, there's obviously different aspects of governance, and we will talk about all three of them. Uh, one of them is what I like to call the technical governance. And we spoke about that in the episode when we spoke about notations and frameworks. Um, this is all about what is the method that we want to use? How do we configure the tool? What are the different views and viewpoints and models and whatnot, what we create? This also then includes the integration of your tool with other systems of records, you know, building the interfaces and uh, building the reporting and the automation. So all the technical stuff in some form or fashion. The second part is looking at the processes. So we're talking about what we ask people to do. And this is why it's so important to have the representatives that we spoke a minute ago um, being in the room to say, hey, I want you in your role as, say, modeler to do this. Or I want you, JM, in your role as the release manager to do that. And obviously, those folks should have a say in there. It shouldn't be somebody in a closet who just comes up with the best um, idea defining those processes. And my recommendation would be map them out. Take your architecture tool, so you have something to show, create a value chain, one diagram, put all the steps in there, what you think people should do, and then create BPMN diagrams underneath that then show who's doing what and where are the process interfaces and what are the artifacts that somebody shall create and so on and so forth. And then the last step is uh, looking at the organizational side. Which roles do we have? Which skills do we need? How do we organize in groups? Do we need a, a COE? Do we need an ARB? Do we need whatever, right? That then will have an impact, obviously, on the training. And then lastly, once you have all that uh, put to paper, then I would come and would say, okay, now let's have a look, just like any other automation project, now let's have a look which parts of that value chain we can successfully automate and which ones we should automate, you know, because then when you think about you stick with that role as the release manager, you know, somebody who say um, packages everything, for example, a certification of models every 180 days, mm -hmm. um, what needs does that person have? I can imagine definitely a dashboard that tells him, oh, those guys are late, yeah. you know, or I have those exceptions, or I have those guys who come in for this and that reason who want to be part of my release, so I have to change my release plan. You don't want to have a third person mapping this out, but bring the, the people, the representatives who will do that work in those conversations. Right. And then it depends on your tool how that works in, in the tool that you and I use. It's all graphical. You model a process, you model the screens, uh, you wire them up, and then you press a magic button. And lo and behold, it executes that process then so that when you go into the tool and you have a model, you have a button to click on and say, submit for approval. Yeah. Right. And, and there might be others who do that differently, other tools. But at the end of the day, it should be a custom process that meets your stakeholders and your representatives' needs. Yeah, of course. Let's talk a little bit about this. We're going to address it later on. But you're talking about really doing discovery on your stakeholders' needs mm -hmm. and keeping those discovered needs 
throughout the process of development and execution of governance. We don't. We never want to walk away from our stakeholders. Mm-hmm. They're they're who we are serving with what we do, and I think you've t- we talk a lot about this ivory tower syndrome where we we lose sight of who we're serving. Well, this is a a, a time to reflect. Remember that they are who you're looking to to support and building structures, processes, and interfaces to best meet their needs. So. I know we've talked a little bit about this and there's a lot that we're going to put in the show notes, but I wanted to stop for a moment to ask a question to our audience because we love to get some some thoughts in there and give you a chance to reflect on what you've heard so far. And our question for right now is what are you doing today around governance in your role or at your organization? Things you have visibility to, things you're involved in. Um, If you are involved in governance, what is working about that? Versus what are you struggling with? What What is a challenge for you? If you're not directly involved, then what are you seeing as challenges? And we'll give you a couple of seconds to come up with one to three ideas or requests, change requests. What would make this process easier for you? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our thoughts and a little bit about the how of process and governance. Lately I've been feeling that So, welcome back. Um, I hope you uh, had some time to think about it. As always, the PSA, don't take notes while driving. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I want to switch topics a little bit, JM. I uh, want to make it into the realm of how do we make these things happen? Right. And and two things that come to mind are processes and organization. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we set this up? So let me start with the first area, the process governance, JM. Um, how, what have you seen in the past and, and how do you design those governance processes? That's a great question. And I, I, I think this is the first part of it is, is getting information, right? Uh, process, the governance of process and architecture is, is about designing a process. And that process is going to revolve around your stakeholders' needs, um, your organization's needs, and ultimately what you want to be able to produce with this governance. You want to be able to produce governed, validated uh, architect, uh, architecture artifacts mm-hmm. and uh, process models and everything that goes into the way your organization works. So the first thing you want to do is talk to the people who are creating those things. Um, so you're looking to discover things from your architects, from your process modelers, um, from the people who are actually at the ground level working. What are they doing and what are they able to give and what do they need to get back? So perfect examples, architects might need validated reusable knowledge. Think about those as like your standard objects of you know, uh, applications or data or organization or these things that they're going to be reusing in their models, regardless of how you're doing your modeling methodology, these are standards that they want to be able to get back. So mm-hmm. the, the first thing they're going to say to you is we want to have a process by which we can ensure that the, the, re, the information we're using has been validated. Okay, so now I, I understand I need to have reusable knowledge objects as part of what we do. So you're talking, for example, about things like technical interfaces to other systems of truth. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the next next thing I need to understand is what is being put upon my company as a requirement. 
Um, some of those things could come from external sources like regulators um, or uh, you know, regulatory requirements. Um, it could be internal uh, or external auditors. Uh, could for the, for the purpose of certification. So if you're like ISO certified or if you've got um, other sorts of compliance to regulatory sets that will allow you to get a certification. That's really important to know so you can design your governance process to make sure it fits within those parameters. A third piece of discovery is, of course, from management. Um, what's necessary for them to feel comfortable with the work that's being performed? Um, what expectations do they have on the content the architects uh, are creating uh, and the way in which that, uh, that content is disseminated? So they, you need to know what the expectations are on you from above. So now we've got from below, we've got from inside and outside, and we have from above. That information is really good to start making a model. And I think Roland uh, alluded to it in the, in the previous section. We were actually creating a process model, a BPMN style, a DPC style, and any style process model. It doesn't really matter. But what we are doing is creating our own process for governance. And that process for governance is going to have a few different things. First and foremost, it's going to have a flow. So you're going to have a series of steps that will occur in an order that will allow you to achieve this governance goal. And that flow is something we will later on talk about yeah, how to automate that flow. But let's start with the flow. What happens in what sequence? Next, we're going to have conditions and variations, business rules of our flow. So why would I have to seek a secondary approval? Are there certain conditions? Like, for instance, this is a priority. This is a concern with a particular project. This is part of a certain business line. Those rules are going to help us have a variation to that flow. So we have our standard flow. We have all of our variations to that flow. The next piece of the puzzle we're going to need to know is at every step in the process, what is executing that process, right? Are we looking at somebody that's part of a governance group? Or are we looking at automation that goes in and does something for us to support governance? Perfect example of that um, is in a lot of the processes that I designed for governance, it includes what we call a semantic check. We've talked about this before, but it's the, uh, the idea of evaluating the content you've created for semantic accuracy. Does it follow our standards and guidelines for how to represent information and connect information? You might as well automate that because if you're looking to do that manually, having sort of somebody eyeball every process, that can get quite cumbersome on your governance structure. So we're, we're seeing, are there things in place that are automated? Are there things in place that will require a human touch, a sign off? And once again, that, that could be something that's discovered from those previous three groups. Yeah, and when you talk about sign offs, maybe one trap that um, I hope not so many projects fall into is, I've seen it in the past where people looked at existing governance groups because there's a governance for your risks and there's a governance for your projects and there's a governance for your technology XYZ and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And then they designed a governance process that had 50 players in there. <laughs> and each of those 50 <laughs> players was expecting to getting that little snippet of information being served on a silver platter. Yeah. And, and I think if you design your governance process in that fashion, you don't do anyone a favor. JM, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you want to make sure that you understand us versus them, right? What are the edge boundaries of the concerned stakeholders of your process? And narrow down your governance touches to the people who need to see it and need to be affected by it. Um, otherwise, you're opening up the world of possibilities to everyone around who wants to chirp in on everything that's associated. Or you're opening yourself up to a world of hurt, mm -hmm. of trying to wrangle 
the cats of your organization to come in and give you their two cents when you don't really need them or somebody within your own house could have done that same job. You'll end up paying in time, you'll end up paying in frustration, and ultimately, I think you're not gonna get a better result. It's just gonna cost you more. Yeah, and, and when you think about it, uh, it's always push or pull, mm -hmm. right? And, and I obviously have a favorite on this, but if you always go push, that obviously puts a load on the people who execute those governance processes. Yeah. And that's something that you wanna avoid because at the end of the day, I think you want have your roles, your architects, your uh, modelers, everybody who you've designed in there, they are here to create something, to create your solution. Mm -hmm. They're not here to execute that governance process. So just a food for thought, when you define those interfaces to existing groups or involve stakeholders and whatnot, think about push or pull. And in most cases, I would recommend to make it a pull exercise yeah. to say, hey, you get pinged to give your two cents to this, but don't expect me to present that stuff to you. I built a dashboard, for example, or I built a report for you, right? Yeah. And you just press this button and, and you just grab it from there. And I know, because I've worked in those organizations that are very, quote unquote, traditional, you know, where people live in their inbox, those have a hard time to adjust, Yeah. you know? And, and that's a, a cultural aspect that you have. Uh, to have in your mind when you design your governance processes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we're bringing in all those elements to create, once again, this physical model that represents it. Now that model has a few different components to it uh, that, that will help you to achieve that automation or achieve that connection, achieve that, that relationship. And we talk about that in the implementation side of things. Uh, your model, each of those pieces of, uh, of uh, you know, text here, you're saying, hey, do this thing, this little box becomes a code block. Mm -hmm. uh, and to do that, you, you need business services. Um, either you're writing code for each piece of that puzzle, um, or most tools have standard code blocks you can pull from. A perfect example, once again, that I use all the time is code blocks that will allow me to pull information from us from somewhere or a code like, for instance, who's the model owner of this thing that's being approved or code blocks allow me to move information around. Like once this model has been approved, I'd like to migrate it to a production space where people can see it. Um, those are really handy things because once again, each of those steps is going to have some component of automation to it, even if it's a human touch. Um, then that's the other, the next thing you're going to need is screens. Screen design is an important part of it because you want to make your interface as easy as possible for people to use. Remember, we are, as much as it is a part of their job, we are kind of asking nicely for people to become involved in this. Um, and if they don't, there's you know, there's, there's some recourse, but it, we can make this go a lot more smoothly with, uh, with honey than vinegar. That's a good point, JM. When you look at what do you ask people to approve? Mm -hmm. Typically, it's just a subset of a bigger artifact. You know, when right. you think about a solution design, you have your processes, your apps, your orcs, your whatever. Uh, you involve people to say, hey, you're the expert for this. Can you give me a thumbs up on that? Right. And um, one thing I would recommend, and this is uh, against everything what you read in the TOGAF spec, for example, <laughs> is don't create a big document. Yeah. You know, because if you get a big document of 500 pages and somebody says, I think you should approve somewhere around page 324, 
it will not happen. Nope. Or they read everything and it's not interesting for them. However, if you do this in your architecture tool, you then say, look, we created this model, this narrative for you um, that is relevant for you. Can you have a look at this? And your screen literally for that role has a link that says click here mm. and then only that information opens for them and they can give their comments they obviously can navigate in um, auxiliary views that are somehow related to it but the focus is still on that single thing that you ask them to approve yeah. and if they get lost they can cancel and they can do it again and start over Right. And I think that's one thing you should keep in mind. Don't create the 500 page documents that we all know nobody will read anyways after the project. Yeah. Part, part of the, our job here is in experience design, mm -hmm. not just for external, not like our customers or our clients or our partners, but for our people internal. The better experience we can have interacting with them and they can have interacting with our process, the more they're likely to do it, do it right, do it quickly and be happy in that doing it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the last piece of the puzzle here is that there is a, a technical component to it. Sometimes you're going to have to add additional you know, components besides the business services, things like messages and, and the screens that are, are going. We talked about before the forms people have to fill in, the different interfaces that they're going to, they're going to go to. But lastly, you want to get the information to wireframe up dashboards because ultimately you want to present information back to them in a fashion they can consume. So that's the standard UX conversation, things like placements and emergent features and, uh, and all these sorts of things you're going to want to do for dashboard design to help pass that information back. But once again, you're relying on and drawing on that discovery you do at the beginning of process design to say, okay, so this was really important during the process discovery side it's probably going to be very important during the dashboard design side. And ultimately, I want to be able to provide that back to those stakeholders. So that's the technical side of things. And there's a lot more to do with this. But I, I wanted to, to, to call that out as there, if there's a few different things in process governance. Yeah. And to add to this, <clears throat> because we haven't spoken about that, if you think about um, one aspect of the whole program, of the whole governance, is to make sure that we're successful. So as part of your strategy, you should have identified your KPIs and how you measure those to say, yep, this is exactly that uh, we say it's good. So to give you an example, um, when we think about that release cycle, the, the renewal or recertification of processes mm -hmm. uh, on a regular basis, well, you want to measure how long does it take? How long does it take from initial submission to first rejection or approval mm. right and then you want to have this on a per model base all those little things that i just mentioned but you also want to know where am i uh, with the whole package do i have whatever 95 of my stakeholders pressing the accept button and and they love it while those five percent don't open their e emails and they don't see it and mm -hmm. they don't click on it and whatnot and you have to nag them because obviously you as the release manager might get measured by how fast can you push a batch of models through that recertification process. Right. So think about the KPIs, how you measure success, just like with any other process design, what's the outcome, but also define KPIs for your governance processes. And that obviously then will lead into quote unquote SLAs, your service level agreements, mm -hmm. uh, that then will drive things like, well, how long am I willing to wait for JM to press the button? <laughs> or when do I start rerouting it? When do I start to escalate it? Mm -hmm. And those are also things that you should have being part of your process and 
in your automated process as well. And that would imply, um, when you talk about escalation, uh, a hierarchy of approvals, a sort of delegation or uh, a substitution that's available, which means you've got an organization behind how governance is done. And I, I know Roland, you know, this, this, there was some, you know, we talked about the governance process itself, but behind that is the organizational governance that you're trying to design and use technology, use practice uh, to really bring to life. Tell me a little bit more about that organizational governance side. Oh yeah, so so there's multiple aspects to it. One is obviously the, the organizational side is, hey, you need to go in deeper into what your roles are doing to be able to derive permissions, for example, or to being able to configure them as participants in in the governance process. Right. But let me take a step back. Um, when you think about governance, each and every one sees that some of us just every four years uh, <laughs> sees that how we manage our society you know we have three branches of government you know we have the legislation which is in our use case our methods and standards tool uh, group which most likely is the one that that we were just talking about in the last half hour you know who define the governance processes right then you have your judges you know, so you need some form of group. And what I typically see there is uh, are groups like an architecture review board, for example. Those are the also part of your governance process. Those are the meetings. Those are the groups where you find consensus during this process. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least, you obviously have the executive. And those are the people who drive everything. And what you typically see there are centers of excellence, uh, this is the place where you have the enterprise architect role being in charge to define the system, how people do things. This is where you see the places where you have all those specialists. Um, for example, your developers, your administrators, and all those guys who work on behalf of other people, mm -hmm. your modelers, your solution architects, and so on. Right. So I think you need, you need all three areas, if you think about governance uh, or government, in this case, um, if it works well, I think those three areas should be in some form or fashion reflected in your organizational governance. If it works well. <laughs> How do we set them up for success, right? Yeah, the good news is you designed it. So oh, with no. all the stakeholders that we have involved, so hopefully they do have a stake in there. Yeah, the, the good news or the bad news is that you designed it, right? If yeah. it goes well, <laughs> you're, you're golden. If it goes wrong, uh, it's on you. Question comes up now. You have defined it. You, you said yes. We need an ARB. Yes, we need a COE, right? Then the question comes up. That's great. You know, how do we build this, right? How do we set this up, people-wise? And by the way, how do we uh, set up our governance? And when you think about it, there's different aspects of it. You know, you could do it uh, in a very hierarchical way. Mm -hmm. Right? You, you have the boss approving everything, every step, every decision goes to the boss. If the boss is not there, the process stops. Right. Right? Um, in some organizations in the past, I've seen the governance groups playing that role. This is how the committee of no came into uh, life. Another way to do this is you could do this in a consensus-driven way. And some of the concepts that made it in the business world are, for example, what we see at Zappos with Holacracy, where people build circles and they have a very uh, fine measure of connecting those circles to each other. 
and then they make the decision, right? So it's it's a mm -hmm. decentralized, a consensus-driven way of making decisions, which obviously comes with its challenges itself. You have nobody to nail uh, and or to put in a barrel of tar and feather if you don't have a hierarchy there, right? <laughs> I see Roland's used to this kind of uh, approach for organizational punishment. <laughs> no, 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 no. I kid, I kid. But I think that accountability is very important. Accountability is very important. The third way you could do it, you could have a laissez-faire approach to it. You just say, I don't care how you do this. You're responsible for that, you know, and everybody works in a silo. Right. And, and I think everybody of us on this call and listening to this podcast has seen that, that siloed organizations have their own issues. So you don't want this either. Um, another way of doing this is you just define the guardrails mm -hmm. and you have a cross-functional decision-making um, mechanism. And that is a little bit of a mix of siloed and consensus driven, you know, mm -hmm. it's like you uh, write down the specifications of, of a thing that you want to do and you hand over the specification as good as you can. But the person who reads it understands something different. And then the thing that you get is not what you expected. And it's the same way that you could see here when you have those um, border impacts, if you will and you hand it over to somebody else and you don't know what they make of it. Yeah. Or you go into a big mix and, and as you can see, your creativity can be endless here. You have some form of federated model. That's what you think about the agile folks that's oriented on uh, your different solutions and your products that you build, right? So you have your architects that do the domains and then you have your solution architect and maybe you have a solution portfolio manager on top of it and they work in their little bubble when you think about the spotify model and i put links when we spoke with mike about the agile um, and architecture topic i put links in those show notes which i'm happy to put back in here think about how spotify is organized mm -hmm. so i think to get a closure on this i think when you think about setting up your organizations You should think about the three functions, you know, make laws, make sure that the laws are followed and execute on it, just like any government should do. But when it comes to the details, it's very dependent on your organization and what will fly in your organization, which structure you will come up with. JM, does that make sense for you? It does. It absolutely does. And I think that it's a great way of building in success because if you start and you structure your organization you create and you iterate and you validate your processes then when you're ready to automate and execute you have everything you need covered to give yourself the best chance for excellence in governance mm -hmm. And that leads us to uh, the second of our questions for today, because we've talked a little bit about the sort of the how, the practice of putting process governance and organizational governance into play. Think about you now. What is essential for your governance process? Uh, what do you need to see from an organizational perspective? What do you need to see from a personal perspective? What's nice to have? And what tools put those into place? 
Think about those two things, the essentials, the nice to haves, split them up in your mind, figure out how close you are to each uh, and what those gaps are. And we'll see you in just a couple of seconds to reflect on the value and the meaning of all this governance and governance design. Welcome back to the next segment of our show today. And uh, as we all know, JM was asking us about what's essential for your governance processes, you know, the nice to haves and all these things, the tools that you have in place. I like to switch topics a little bit about this because we spoke about how to implement these things. JM, tell me a little bit what we've seen in the past. What are the practical uses for governance that you've seen in projects? Yeah, that's a really good question. We want to talk about where are we getting the reason for governance? What's the what's the meaning of all this governance? And there's a few different practical things you can do with it. The first is enablement. Um, so you, governance is great for helping to support organizational change um, and organizational change management. Get input and be able to be a, an input for that process itself. And so you can be able to push out changes to a larger community with validation, with authority behind them, and give them information in a timely fashion in fashions that they can consume so that they're ultimately able to feel more connected with the change that's ongoing. That's something we talk about a lot in our roles and in our more of consultative side of our role. Um, but enablement is definitely something that, that governance can really support. Uh, the next thing is project tracking. Um, you know, we can understand that these large implementations and initiatives have a lot of pieces to them. Um, and when you implement governance, and particularly process-driven governance, on top of an implementation, we can see ongoing how far that project has progressed. And it's perfect for your PMO as an input into their status reports. I mean, I, I personally worked on a project where I was using governance processes to inform the PMO of different team statuses, where they're lagging, where they're leading, uh, and what outstanding issues had yet to be addressed in this project. Third thing that's really good uh, for governance and particularly automation around governance and when you start to track it, like Roland said, and dashboard it, is to take a look at workload balancing, understanding who is doing what, so which governance tasks um, are being addressed by who at what time, where are things waiting for someone's input, where are people excelling. Um, and you can stack this up, you can go by org, you can go by individual, and you can use this as a, as a driver for better uh, and more consistent behavior in terms of reviewing and approving content, but also in creating uh, and, and addressing ongoing updates of content. And speaking about updates of content, one of the things we use governance for, and we alluded to it earlier, but I want to be specific about this here, um, is we talk about using governance as a mechanism for keeping content evergreen. Um, your organization has a ton of collateral, and it's slowly attritioning that collateral to nothing. It's, it's going to have no value after a certain amount of time. And using automation, and specifically automation and governance, is going to help assign tasks to individuals who are responsible for keeping that 
content evergreen, keeping it refreshed with the newest set of information around how that works and ensuring that everyone who's looking at your knowledge repository is looking at the latest and best uh, available to them. And lastly is the end state of enablement uh, is confirmation management. Uh, one of the things that governance sort of falls into and ties into um, is, is a confirmation management approach. And what that, what that is, is as information is rolled out, you can assign governance tasks, and Roland talked about this before as, as a pull versus a push, but you can, you, can, you can notify people, you can push information to them, say, hey, things have changed, can you, as part of a small governance workflow, approve that you have seen this? Not that you're saying, oh, I agree to the change, rather than you're saying, I validate, I have in fact read those changes, I've understood those changes, and I commit to putting those changes into practice in my life. And that does tie sometimes with audit management, that some, does sometimes ties with regulatory compliance. Um, those are really important parts of how your, how your company operates, and the governance process you build is gonna bring that all together with automation. Yeah, that makes sense, JM. And, and maybe if, if I'd like to summarize it, you know, what's the value of governance? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the big idea here is to make the process run as smoothly as possible. Yeah. And while you're doing that, that you have the needed visibility into where you are. Because as we all know, what's not uh, measured will not be improved. Yeah. So that's, I think, is the, the big idea behind it. And in all reality, what, what do you see, right? You see artifacts like dashboards. You know, you mentioned the PMO uh, that you delivered something to it. My, my comment on this would be, dang, why didn't you create a dashboard for them? And they had to pull it for themselves <laughs> if they're interested in that, you know? That would have been better for me, for sure. Yes. <laughs> so take out the waste right, of that process. Um, the other thing is obviously keeping track and keeping everybody honest. We spoke about this when we spoke about the automation of governance processes. You know, if you give somebody a task list and you track if they have done that task and you can act on it if somebody doesn't. Yeah work on that task, that is helpful, right? Because then you avoid the bottlenecks or you avoid that somebody takes time forever and everybody downstream is waiting and then they get that big wave of work uh, coming their way, which you obviously don't want. Mm -hmm. And then maybe in the same vein, you also want to see uh, the ways how you can route that flow. You know, when do you need to escalate? When do you need to delegate? And we spoke about that a couple of minutes ago, right? So there is a role when you think about uh, your role setup, and most likely it's in the COE, of somebody watching and monitoring those governance processes and then actively interact with those participants and say, hey, what's wrong? You know, can I help you? Why doesn't it go forward? Where's the issue? You know, in a in a helping approach, not in a uh, I'm the big brother with a big carrot and the, no, in this case, the big brother with a big stick and and I will beat you with a stick if you don't do it. <laughs> that, that's the Roland way. The other thing is more in general, just bring in the visibility, you know, dashboards, notifications, all those things that, that need to become uh, reality when you execute your processes. 
But enough about theory, JM. Uh, can you give us an example where you've seen those governance flows in action? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I had a pleasure of working with a major retailer a bunch of years ago, actually. Uh, and one of the things that they were really struggling with is crossing the great divide. We've tried to break that down in a couple of different episodes here, but they had their EA group and their BPA group uh, in completely different silos that were never interacting with each other uh, other than to throw requirements over the wall. There was no sort of iterative design process at all. And what we did is we threw a governance process in halfway. We said instead of just sending requirements over at the end of a, an exercise within your own team, why don't we build automation that forces designs as they're being proposed to be pushed over. So somebody would say, hey, I'd like to redo my architecture. Here are the new capabilities I'm gonna offer. Let's push this over to the business group where those capabilities were previously offered mm -hmm. and see whether or not this new architecture still fits with their needs. Am I going to force them to pivot to, to factor into my own way of harmonizing? Well, that may be good, may be a problem for them. Conversely, the business group would go back and say, hey, listen, I've got this idea. It's gonna rely on new services, new capabilities. In the middle of my design process, I'm gonna get input from my architecture group by, by automation. It's gonna force the conversation to happen. Uh, and we so we essentially built a big circle of governance. And the end of this is that we kept going back and forth between these different parties halfway in their process. And the end of this is once both of them click yes, we could move this into something that they could implement, mm -hmm. both in the practice on the business side and the technology on the architecture side. But by making that conversation come to life through automation, it took away a lot of the personal issues that were coming up. There was no human involved in pushing this information to somebody else. It was just part of the automation. And so there was no tribalism. There was the conflicts were substantially reduced and ultimately better information got passed across the wire. And that's everything we wanted with this governance process. But Roland, I know you also you also, also worked in pretty large organizations and some pretty uh, major players in the industry. Tell me about what you've seen from governance. Yeah, I have a different example for you. And, and I like what you said, because um, to come back to your example first, um, I think one of the things that we mentioned that in an earlier episode as well is you should have something like a release plan of mm -hmm. what are your artifacts. So part of that visibility that I just spoke about is obviously, what do I have to expect? So uh, it would be not good if the automation that you just described just dumps something on somebody's lap if they didn't know that it was coming in some form or fashion at a certain point in time. But anyways, let's go to the, to the example that I had. And that was um, a different organization, um, a uh, organization that was very affected with uh, managing projects. And they were a, a die-in-the-wool waterfallish organization. Right, and everything they did was waterfall, 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 and and they forced that on their customers as well. What they realized was that uh, obviously in the twenty first century, agile comes in, and uh, agile was eating their lunch. You know, their customers went to other organizations who basically were well more agile, more open to changes, and not just following the strict process that you see in, in Waterfall. So they came back and said, hey, we want to change too. And kudos to them. So what we did there is we uh, implemented the Spotify model that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago uh, with product owners and guilds and all those wonderful terms that 
nobody in real life uses. <laughs> um, but they said, yeah, we want to have this. But we also realized that we need to have the three uh, areas of governance in place. So we need uh, our judges, right? We need somebody right. who makes the call. And they had an ARB, the Architectural Review Board, in place before, which was the committee of no, N-O. And they didn't like it. And they got rid of it. And then they ran into the situation that they didn't have the coordination. They didn't know what other groups were doing, what other projects were creating, which was also a not so desirable situation. So we were tasked with helping them defining and standing up a new ARB. Um, and the way how we did this was to say, look, we want to be nimble. We want to be agile in doing this, and we want to be first and foremost oriented on uh, the outcome. So why don't we start it with a very, very light touch? Mm. And we defined four phases. And the first phase was, okay, we're standing up this organization, but the only request that we have is that you tell us what you're doing. Right? And we invited the various groups, so we defined who should be there and, and all these type of things. But then we also invited individual projects that were, when you think about their uh, development lifecycle, either somewhere close to the design phase or somewhere close to going live. You know? And we said, come in, tell us what you do. And that helped a lot because that was then like that eye-opening moment like, oh, you're doing that? I thought I'd do this. <laughs> or I had that planned in whatever, the next release for me. So that was the, that was the first thing. And we didn't put in any uh, formal standards, right? We said, okay, bring what you have. This should not be an effort where you have to create something specifically for it. So they brought their PowerPoints and they were talking about it and, and it was good. The next phase was where we wanted to put a little bit more formal structure in there, where we said, okay, let's make it comparable. Give us your artifacts, but give them to us in a way that is comparable. So go into the architecture tool, and if you create an application landscape, this is how it should look like. Or if you create processes, this is what we expect, and you could tell us where it lives in the hierarchy and so, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. The next phase, uh, which interesting enough, we didn't get to because it wasn't needed, that would then be the approve phase. You know, what happens if you have a conflict, if you can't get to an agreement? Somebody needs to flip a coin because otherwise you have that, that uh, stalemate, you know, and, and people don't move on. So the question is then, what's the approval authority that this group has? You know, is it, yes, they have the last call or is it, yes, they flip the coin or is it, no, everybody does what they want. And then the last, the last phase that we conceptualized, and again, we didn't get to this, was um, the helpful uh, older guide, if you will. You know, hey, yeah. JM, you have that new project. Look, we have this governance process that you should go through. This is what's expected. Let me help you with best practices. Let me help you with the tools that you need and so on and so forth to make this process not just a painless projects, but an enjoyable process. Yeah. Come along with me, kind of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, that's good. And like I said, like I said, it, it went well, right? We went up to, to phase two and that was all that they needed. Right, because they 
came to the consensus that we spoke about a couple of minutes ago, and they could find an agreement. And, and it was a forum where they could, whatever, exchange their um, constraints that they have. They could talk about the dependencies that they have between the different groups. And at the end of the day, they found an agreement and, and the ARB became the uh, committee of no, K-N-O-W. Oh, isn't that a good story? Well, you can see these things going into production and being very, very helpful to organizations on their journey. But our question for you is, what's your first step? So first and foremost, what's the first step in your team to implement or improve your governance processes and organization? So who's responsible? Find out who's responsible for driving this conversation at your organization. Think about that in your mind. Figure out who you need to talk to and then Let's come up with some ideas. What is the value that you think matters most to them? What's the case for good governance and governance design for your organization and for well, your whole your whole company? Uh, we're gonna leave you for a second here to uh, think about that. We're gonna come back with the conclusions at the end of the show. So welcome back to the last segment of this show. And uh, this is basically the summary of what we spoke about. So we spoke about the different types of architects that we have and where governance comes in and that you should have less than you had before. We spoke about the implementation, the three different types of governance, technical process and organizational governance. Mm -hmm. We spoke about the stakeholders and how you implement that, how you get the information from them and design your governance processes in a way that it meets everybody, stakeholders uh, needs. And then we obviously spoke about the organization how do you do this? Is it from free for all to strict hierarchy or something in the middle uh, in a federated approach? Mm -hmm. And lastly, we spoke about practical use cases and, and the whole purpose of governance, the uh, value and visibility of governance. So, JM, what are your thoughts on the show today? I think this is a really good exploration of this topic. I, I think it's really important and often underserved, particularly in the strategy and design around it. I think there's a lot of people who sort of clamp down, holding on for dear life, but not really having the, the right information, the right engagement to get us started with. And I'm, I'm so glad we were able to bring our expertise and experience today. And Roland, that was a fantastic to start this conversation for a lot of folks who haven't been involved yet. Um, so first and foremost, to those folks and to everyone, thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy being able to share our thoughts and best practices with our wonderful community of folks. Uh, and of course, you can get lots more of those thoughts and best practices on the website, which is kind of a companion to this podcast at whatsyourbaseline.com. 
Remember, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can reach out to us by email uh, at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com or you can even leave us a voice message uh, on Anchor. Uh, please make sure to leave us a rating as well uh, and a review maybe on your podcatcher of choice. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more we're able to push this great content out to lots of folks just like you. And of course, if you haven't been taking notes because you've been driving, please make sure not to do that. <laughs> you can sure as heck visit the website again at whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 11 for a full transcript of the episode with the full show notes, all the graphics and everything you might need. Well, Roland, any final thoughts for our wonderful audience before we say good afternoon? I couldn't have said it better, JM. I'm just wishing that this episode was very helpful for somebody who's tasked with setting up their governance right now. And I just can invite you to give us feedback and we're happy to help and give you our two cents on that topic. Oh, wonderful. Well, thanks again, folks. And as always, I've been J.M. Erlinson. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>